0: In general, Marvel event handbooks are a quick recap, a visual Wikipedia of story details that can help readers understand the players, reasons, and storylines applicable to the event comic. While this is true of the X-Men Ten of Swords handbook, there's so much we still don't know, and so many fascinating mysteries in the event and the Hickman era of X-Men at large, that I was deeply engaged with the handbook's 50 plus pages hunting for clues. Today I'll answer, what are the most interesting secrets and ideas present in the handbook comic? What surprising character inclusions promise much more to come in Ten of Swords, and of course, theories and predictions for what's to come in X-Men, and of course, the ongoing Ten of Swords event. Hey everybody, I'm Dave Busing, founder and editor-in-chief of ComicBookHerald.com. You are listening to Kraken Krakoa. Number 110. If you like the Comic Book Herald YouTube channel or crack in Krakoa, please consider liking, subscribing, and sharing. You can find reading orders and guides over on Comic Book Herald, and spoilers for discussed comics, including the Ten of Swords event to date, may follow. The first secret of the handbook that I want to talk about not so secret the roster okay the roster of characters that are included in the guide now we have Apocalypse, Captain Britain, Doug Ramsey, Gorgon, Betsy Braddock, Krakoa, Moira McTaggart, Magic, Wolverine, and the X-Men as a team what do they all have in common well for the most part they're all a part of the Ten of Swords event but then the first thing that stands out is the inclusion of two mutants in this guide who have had no role in Ten of Swords at the time of the handbook's release and very limited roles in the Dawn of X as a whole number one Megan who is she Well, Megan is Brian Braddock's wife, mother to their child Maggie, and longtime mutant member of Excalibur. Technically, she debuts in her bat-like form in the Alan Moore and Alan Davis run on Captain Britain, but most readers will recognize her from the Claremont and Alan Davis work on Excalibur that begins circa 1988. It's interesting. Why include Megan? Halfway through Ten of Swords, we still haven't seen her as a character, but the Braddock family, Brian, Betsy, Jamie, all have major roles to play in the event. Now, while I fully expect changes to Team Braddock, remember Megan has been Queen of Avalon previously, and has connections to the realms as well. I find it hard to believe Megan would be included here purely for her reaction to changes to Betsy and Brian, so instead, I think it's likely we'll see her traveling back to Otherworld, in the Ten of Swords event to take on a new essential role, as Brian has already chosen to do, the same as Captain Avalon. Again, otherwise including her in this handbook is just really weird. <laughs> same goes for Brew. Brew's inclusion is definitely the most interesting to me because, unlike Megan, who has a clear connection to the Braddock family, Brew is seemingly far outside the core Ten of Swords focus. Who is Brew? Well, he is a character, he is a brood, yes, technically, but he's also extremely intelligent, and he also can express empathy which makes him arguably sort of a brood mutant. He is uh, debuts in the pages of Astonishing X-Men, comes really most into his own in the pages of the Jason Aaron written Wolverine in the X-Men series as a student of Wolverines at the Jean Grey School for Learning and most recently we've seen Brew eat a king egg alongside the X-Men here and become or at least seemingly become king of the Brood. So why include this character in the handbook again that is supposed to be all about Ten of Swords? Well could there be some space connections raining down with the Vespora from Sword? Okay, the Vespora are in the Sword Station. Sword is the uh Marvel's shield of space. And they we know via cable's spin-off tie-in comic in this event so far that like sword's gonna have a role, right? Brew does have sword connections. That's actually where he debuts, is he is a a like refugee slash captive of Sword during a Brood invasion and Then he's given to the X-Men because again, he is not like the other brute, could he come swimming down along with the Vespor, bringing his brute army to Otherworld to help out, to help out the, uh, the X-Men in their time of need in Otherworld. Also, I could have saved this for another video, but what the heck, we're still down a sword bearer on the Krakoan side. And all signs, see also the free comic day issue art, Pepe Raza's Instagram, are pointing towards it being Magneto. My personal favorite outcome here is Mags waltzing into the party with the literal sword space station in tow as his weapon, bringing the Vespora and the Brood armies through to Otherworld as a Cricone trump card to save the day. That could be where Brew fits into the scheme of things. The second secret that I want to talk about, thing I really observed and and found interesting, was this idea of the Apocalypse 8. Okay, the Apocalypse Phillips notes are interesting. The first, there's kind of two parts to this note. The first is that Evan Sabiner, the clone of Big Daddy A known as Kid Apocalypse in the pages of Wolverine and the X-Men, should not be confused with Apocalypse. This seems to offer some wiggle room to include Kid Apocalypse in the Krakoa era of X-Men, okay? We've been some questions and he's been one of my major missing mutants in those videos about Kid Apocalypse. Where is he? I think the, the clarification here that he is not the same as the Apocalypse we know makes it maybe more likely we will see him. The second note is an even bigger deal though because it's stating that references to the apocalypse we know and sabanur as the eighth apocalypse of reality earth 616 remain unverified before i get into what i think this note means i will mention some listeners have pointed out according to al ewing's ultimates we are on the eighth iteration of the marvel multiverse which would also explain reference to and as the eighth version of apocalypse the problem here is at least as far as I see it, is that this reasoning would, I think, also be true for virtually every other character in Earth 616, so I don't know why it would be specific to Apocalypse. Where otherwise though, might the Apocalypse legacy come from, this idea that he's 8th in a line of Apocalypses? Well, primarily it comes from Uncanny X-Force, Dark Angel Saga, a concept from the Rick Remender X-Verse, and again, it's unconfirmed if Hickman or anyone will actually lean into this idea of apocalypse as a position the Celestials fill on Earth every few centuries. In the Dark Angel saga, Apocalypse is a position essentially that Archangel former Horseman of Death ascends to, and we've seen other versions of this in the Age of Apocalypse timeline as well and across again this uh, Remenderverse extending into the pages of Uncanny Avengers where the likes of Holocaust or the Apocalypse Twins are looking to ascend to the role of now this timelines, Apocalypse. If this thinking does hold up, it offers some really interesting outcomes for Ten of Swords, where anyone from Genesis, Apocalypse's wife in this case, to the Children of Apocalypse, to Storm could potentially ascend to the new apocalypse of Earth-616 pending the outcome of the event and the current and Sabender's removal or death, which certainly is being teased potentially very heavily in where we're at in Ten We also have very little conclusive idea what the celestial connections to apocalypse actually are, which is something I'm super keen to see explored, perhaps in Hickman collaborating with writer Karen Gillen, as he takes on the Eternals where the Celestials originally debuted back in the Jack Kirby comics. The third item I want to talk about was a little bit of Gorgon and and kind of just some ideas that came out of reading the Gorgon section in this handbook. Uh, There's this idea of Swordbearer Resurrection that I found really interesting. One thing I realized reading the history of Gorgon, a.k.a. Tomi Shishido, is presented here is that when you run down the list of Krakoan Swordbearers, How many have undergone a resurrection via non-Krakoan means in the past? Wolverine via Persephone, a mutant with the power to raise and control the dead. Doug Ramsey resurrected in Necrotia by Selene. Brian Braddock, Merlin and Roma resurrected him. Apocalypse has all these celestial rebirths. Gorgon is talked about here. The Hand resurrects him via the Hand magic. Magic is resurrected via Belasco's magic in Limbo. Betsy Braddock is resurrected via Jamie, her brother's uh, Omega-level powers. The only couple that don't really fit this idea of all the sword bears having been resurrected some other way is Storm, who, to my knowledge, is one of, like, the only Marvel characters who has not died, and Young Cable, who, of course, is Young and Cable. So, what does this mean? Like, what the idea of them having all undergone and resurrection? Well, I was kind of thinking, like, could this provide an out after Otherworld? The big thing in Ten of Swords right now is we know... Resurrection has been corrupted on Krakoa, okay? If you die in Otherworld, which is the risk all of these Swordbearers face going to this tournament of champions, you can't be resurrected in Krakoa the same way. Or if you are, what we've seen with Rockslide is that he's like a weird mashup of all these alternate reality rock Slides in one body. So could this be an out saying, well, all these characters have been resurrected another way previously. Maybe we get resurrected that way again. The other thing I find interesting is all these characters have danced with death in the past, but only Storm has really won, right? Like in the way we've seen in Giant Size X-Men um, in the Hickman stories, and we see her facing off and literally dancing with death on the cover of the upcoming issues of Marauders. Could this mean big things for Storm? The fact that she's the only one here who hasn't really had to undergo resurrection, giving her an important role moving forward. The history refresher I appreciated in Gorgon's section as well is the Gorgon-Mariko-Wolverine secret triangle that preceded the Dawn of X in the pages of Old Man Logan, I think it's number 31 to 33, and which was also recently referenced in a data page of Ben Percy's run on Wolverine in the Ten of Swords chapters. Uh, basically, the big like thing that's definitely going to come down the line in a Wolverine comic is Gorgon brought, resurrected Mariko, Wolverine's long-lost love, for the purposes of making her his Scarlet Samurai, and then they, you know, they had to fight in the way that uh, Old Man Logan, you know, comics do, but uh, Wolverine doesn't know about this yet, or at least it's unrevealed. If he knows about this yet, could that mean, you know, that we saw Wolverine and Gorgon famously sharing a beer at the end of House of X number 6? Could this mean Wolverine turns on Gorgon's inclusion in Krakoa? And what would that actually mean, you know? Because, again, like, we've seen Wolverine object two characters in Krakoa in the past, could Wolverine make a break and say, screw it, I'm out of here, which is kind of his M.O.? The other big handbook conclusion, of course, that makes a lot of sense is Moira McTaggart. I mean, I think The Lives of Moira X is always a great reread. Uh, Frankly, it was interesting just to kind of go back and see these details again. The things I found most interesting here in the data is, well, the line here, rescued Apocalypse's first horseman in unrevealed circumstances. I mean, we know this, but again, it's interesting to think about. The Krakoa nation of Life 9 appears much different. The mutants retreat to Krakoa only after their capital cities of Kerr and Tian in Asia are destroyed by Sentinels, and all of this is at 50 for Myra, which in a lot of her lifelines she doesn't even live that long. So like, the Krakoa of Life 9, this uh, this life where she did rescue Apocalypse's first horseman, it's very different, you know? So I, I think it's, I've been saying like, well we know she rescued the horseman in a past life, What shouldn't Myra kinda know how Ten of Swords is going to shake out? And the reality is, the event played out very differently in Life 9. Like, the status and the context and everything was was simply quite different, so it's not surprising that maybe she would be a little in the dark as far as what's happening here. It's also really interesting in Life 9 how long things take in this timeline. You know, as we look at the ages being laid out, Sinister's Chimera cloning on Mars occurs, occurs over 15 years. You know, we've been talking about maybe he's working on Chimeras already. I guess in this case, like, we know he already has done one because he's put his mutant DNA in himself, and Barbara calls that out in one of her journal entries saying, like, wow, he's done it already, but in the Life nine it took him forever to get that right you know in quotes and the other thing i want to call out here is is kinross you know myra kinross her, her birth name she allies with xavier and the two secretly work to ensure their own progeny would result in omega level mutants through careful breeding now this is something i called back called up way back in the moira journal entries in the pages of powers of 10 saying hey it looks like uh moira and charles you know they they like specifically had the children that they had in order to create Omega-level mutants. This this cements it. This certifies, like, yeah, that's exactly what they did. It was breeding. Uh, it was careful breeding to result in Omega-level mutants. This also means that, you know, we see the role Proteus is playing in, in terms of the resurrection process. We haven't seen the role Legion is playing. He was created for a very specific purpose. I'm curious to see what that's going to be. And then one final piece here that was specified. Uh, I appreciate how there's confirmation that Moira and Professor X approached Magneto sometime after Kitty Pride joined the team in the you know original house and power stuff like they kind of just say like year 1, year 5 it doesn't like it's not super specific and you know they this way it fits in with my theory that they approach Magneto pretty specifically after the events of Uncanny X-Men number 150, when Chris Claremont and team started working on the redemption of Silver Age Magneto as this, you know, mustache-trolling supervillain and began making him the more nuanced villain that we know today. Another addition to the handbook is, of course, Krakoa. What do we know? Well, techno-organic Krakoa is confirmed. Here's a quote. Upon arrival, Cypher and his secret companion, Warlock of the Technarchy, disguised as a circuitry sheath covering Cypher's right arm, quietly infected a Krakoan plant with a techno-organic virus. The reason for this action and any results from it are unrevealed. This is a big one, right? And it's something that we've been talking about. Okay, these panels, I think, have been linger- lingering in a lot of readers' minds. Where Doug reaches out and infects Krakoa, the, the question as to why, again, remains un. Revealed. now there was a recent jordan d white interview in uh in adventures in poor taste he mentioned that the doug hiding warlock thing was not meant to be such a plot point that like necessarily it wasn't going to be a big deal down the road this is really weird to me if true it could be a total misdirect it could just be him you know like not answering a question or not wanting to give away too many details which i totally get but if doug because again like he's not actually hiding warlock very well right? Like, his arm looks exactly like Warlock. Everyone looking at that would be like, hey, Warlock's on Doug's arm. What's the deal with that? That said, he was hiding it for some reason when Cyclops saw him in the pages of X-Men number 7. he Warlock vanished. He didn't want him to see. When Magic found Warlock in Giant Size Nightcrawler, he was like, please don't tell anyone. Please don't tell anyone. Now we're just out in the open. Doug and, and Warlock. What are they doing? What is this techno-organic infestation on Krakoa? I love seeing it confirmed that, like, yes, we aren't crazy. This happened. This is possibly going somewhere big. My favorite element in the handbook is likely the annotated map of Krakoa laying out all the locations on the island and the issues where those places may have been referenced. I'll be revisiting these sections in the future for sure. There's plenty to dig into here, but one of the items that definitely holds my attention is the presence of Krakoan gates and flower manufacturing on Mars. Given Sinister's breeding pits in the Mars of of Myra's Nightlife, it's inherently interesting. But the item that caught my eye here is how Automatons run the facilities and processing of Kirkoan flowers on the Red Farm. These are creations of Forge, and design-wise look like a combination between Hickman's Builders, Ultimaton, and washerheads from Horizon Zero Dawn. This may amount to nothing, but generally creating labor forces with no free will goes badly. Just ask the Inhumans about the Alpha Primitive sometime. I wonder if this will be the last we hear from Forge's Automaton or if they will have an uprising or a role themselves. Perhaps there's more there. The other maps of course uh, are very cool. My favorite location on the island is number 29 the Unidentified Forked towers the mystery of the towers remains fascinating shown as the realm of nimrod and powers of 10 in the future timeline and in the present only accessible through teleportation which is a fascinating detail that i was not aware of my theory here is that only moira and maybe professor x and magneto know why the towers are on krakoa otherwise how the hell did they get there and why aren't mutants more concerned like if truly no one knows how they got there that seems like a problem Kurt has a conversation with Cyclops in X-Men number 7 about how absolutely weird it is that these towers are created on Krakoa, almost as if deliberately for him to start his mutant religion, but I think it really is just Moira using the combined knowledge of Nine Lifetimes to know what Kurt is looking for. I think, like, she's more uh, in control of what is on the island, at least in regards to these towers. I also have a half-baked theory that Kurt will use the towers to communicate his mutant religion across the Marvel cosmic galaxy, but I have zero evidence to back that up. Number six, I don't want to talk about the rules of mutant resurrection. When describing resurrection, the handbook says this process was used to resurrect all previously deceased X-Men except clones and alternate reality versions of existing members. This is fairly important. You know, it's a fairly important, if arguably incorrect, assertion, as I've been contemplating throughout much of the Dawn of X about whether clones can be resurrected, and in my Missing Mutants videos, call out several clones and alt-reality regulars who we haven't seen, or haven't seen much of, in this era of X-Men. The rationale for this rule makes more sense when considered editorially, when breaking the fourth wall, where I'd argue that, you know, Hickman and company prefer a streamlined X-Men lineup that doesn't include 74 Wolverines running around at the same damn time. I'm good with two as well, so you know thank you for that, I would say. In execution, though, it's a bit ill-defined. I think the the quote versions of existing members caveat is the crucial language, allowing for the likes of the clone stepper cuckoos and Gabby, aka Honey Badger, who aren't exact replicas of another X character. So the likes of Madeline Pryor, Dark Beast, Old Man Logan, or Bloodstorm are off the table, but the mere use of clone DNA doesn't actually keep mutants out of the queue. Again, I think this should be delineated more clearly in a future data page, especially given the story arc that Hellions told us with Madeline Pryor and the Quiet Council's decision-making there. Number seven item on the list. Let's talk a little bit about Secret Wars. How does Secret Wars work? In Hickman's X-Men, in the history of Brian Braddock, there's an update on Saturnine and the Captain Britain Corps and their role in the build through Secret Wars. I continue to have questions about what is actually remembered of Secret Wars and by whom. And as the handbook says, most people recalled neither the multiverse's destruction nor its rebirth. But that's not all. In the case of Otherworld, though, we know laws of reality behave differently, and we know the Captain Britain Corps remains wiped out even after Reed Richards and Fam restored the Marvel Universe after the events of Secret Wars, right? The impact still lingers. What does Saturnine know of all of this. And what of the secrets she hid in Brian's eye hole? (laughs) Could those still be somewhere within Brian Braddock? Related, Otherworld was overrun by Beyonder's wave of mapmakers during Secret Wars, which ties into my theory that I I pitched back in the most recent uh, coverage of X-Men Stasis. You know and I'm peddling here? That Mercator, the mysterious realm of Otherworld, is inhabited by Hickman's Avengers-era invading forces. I think mapmakers are potentially living in this world that is, again, named after a famous cartographer I'm beginning to suspect that is not an accident and we might see how Secret Wars can spill over this kind of detritus remaining from the event in otherworld i think that would be actually really really awesome the final thing i want to call out are some wild character call outs that occur in the handbook and just some details that really grab my attention uh, from comics i either hadn't read or just did not remember for my money one of the wildest shout outs comes pretty late in the handbook when our faithful writers go well out of their way to make sure forget me not gets a shout out now I, ironically, had forgotten entirely about Forget-Me-Not as a character. Who the heck is Forget-Me-Not? One of my favorite mutant powers of the 2000s, Forget-Me-Not debuted in X-Men Legacy number 300, an anniversary anniversary issue co-written by Mike Carey, Sy Spurrier, and Christos Gage. Forget-Me-Not's power is that unless someone is looking at him, they'll forget he's there and lose their memory of him. The character is essentially an open invitation to revisit any moment from X-Men history and tell you the true history of forget Me Not's role in the event that everyone simply forgot. This is extremely interesting to me as it pertains to the Dawn of X. Again, calling out this character's existence like... In, in any capacity, suggesting to me that the character might have a role, that there could be some idea about Forget-Me-Not showing up later. And Hickman, I, I talk about this a lot, but he loves to revisit scenes and fill in details, you know, to kind of leave things open-ended and then fill in like, yeah, also here are these three panels that tell you the secret history of how this thing worked. Forget-Me-Not is the perfect character for that stylistic tick, and I would love to see him integrated in, in some X-Men comics moving forward. A couple other quick hit details that I had either forgotten or, again, maybe just never read. Uh, One is that Cassandra Nova came back in Bishop's mind in the pages of Uncanny X-Force not that long ago. So we've seen her bond now to different mutants. We saw her bond and Flip with Professor X, of course, most famously in her debut in New X-Men. But she also bonds and attaches to Emma Frost, as revealed later in the Joss Whedon and John Cassidy run on Astonishing X-Men, and now we see her do it here, again, secretly accompanying Bishop in his mind, coming to the present. Cassandra Nova is one of the most interesting missing mutants to me, if she is, in fact, even a mutant, up for debate, and uh, the fact that she can kind of hide in all these different characters' minds means, like, okay, which X-character is she hiding in now? We don't know. We saw her go face-to-face with Jean Grey in X-Men Red. Could there be some lingering hiding going on there i think uh there's frankly a lot of options and i find that detail pretty pretty interesting and then the final thing <laughs> like 100 percent a joke but also bewildering and i'm genuinely like what is a uh, cypher and warlock both had sex with danger Okay, (laughs) this is apparently a thing that happened, a thing the the guidebook felt necessary to call out. I'm just going to assume this happened in the Peter David uh, all-new X-Factor run that started like circa 2014. I'm going to guess I haven't researched this, just an assumption, but uh, that's a bonkers detail. And, like, hey, good for them. You know, like, Warlock and Cypher, they're close. Why not? Uh, the question that it does raise for me, though, is like, where is danger? I would like to see danger on Krakoa. I, I don't think the danger is, for those of you who don't know, is in artificial intelligence. Um, who Professor X imprisoned as the danger room for a while, Uh, realized later, you know, there was an artificial intelligence there, but then didn't know how to fix it. Danger is based on sheer technology, and uh, she comes out again in that Joss Whedon and John Cassidy run on Astonishing. Uh, I'd like to see some danger. Again, probably not mutant, but nonetheless, an important character, and uh, let's get that relationship with Cypher and Warlock picking back up some steam. So, in conclusion, I mean, generally speaking, I really wish the handbook included comic book issue references. It does so on on the maps and the the places of Krakoa, but it does not with details of these characters. I mean, like, the thing that I love the most is when I can read details and say, like, oh, cool, now I should read these stories to get the full impact for myself, and the handbook does not provide that, which is kind of a bummer. Um, I did also want to address, but I mean, otherwise, like, it is good detail. I wouldn't say it's a necessary read uh it really um you know handbooks are always kind of just superfluous for people who are super interested in going all in on the event i mean the secrets i talk about here are the things i found most compelling there are a lot of things that it mentions like hey this thing is still unrevealed which teases some other mysteries and things that i didn't cover here because i've probably talked about them in great detail elsewhere on kraken krakoa but those could be of interest as well. I, I do also want to address just very quickly a lot of people have said, like, hey, it mentions, you know, Legion is an active X Men and stuff like that, like at the very end of the thing. I did not interpret that page saying all those characters are um, like actively on Krakoa doing stuff so much as when they were like they were activated as x-men it'll tell you the issue actually in that instance when they were activated as x-men which are always like older comics and then it, i'm more interpreting that as just like yeah if they show up they're technically x-men like they're a part of this roster but it doesn't tell me that like yeah legion's on Krakoa, and he's doing x-men stuff at least i didn't interpret it that way so thanks everybody for listening this has been secrets of the ten of swords handbook i'm dave You can find ways to support the comic book Herald and crack in Krakoa over on patreoncom slash comic book Herald. Thank you in particular to the mysterious benefactors, Ron Paul Kirkley, Jesse W. Professor pride, Steve Brennan, Cole Weathers, Martin Lopez, Chris Isidro, Brent Bowser, and Professor X3769. You can find my stuff at comicbookherald.com, at comicbookherald on social. Look for the best comics ever and my Marvelous Year podcast for more from me. If you have comments, theories, ideas, definitely share them in the comments below. I want to hear what you're saying. In the meantime, thanks for listening, everybody, and enjoy the comics.